Father God, we really call upon you to speak to us this morning. As followers of Jesus, we, we really do believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit and your word can speak to us, even, even change us in ways that nothing else can. And so we would ask you to work toward that in us today. Speak to us in ways that change us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's perhaps an understatement to say that we live at this moment in some interesting and trying times. Um, This week we received a note from a family in our church and it was humble. It was very thoughtful. It was just expressing concern that as a church we've not said enough perhaps soon enough on the matters that are causing such turmoil in our nation and uh, in folks everywhere. And of course I'm talking about the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Rashad Brooks and others like them. Situations where videos uh, have gone viral depicting disturbing, shocking circumstances that raise questions of racism questions of police brutality. And uh, while I've been praying and kind of lamenting and and reading and listening for some weeks now about these matters, I have to confess I've never felt, honestly, more inadequate to stand before you and tell you uh, and a nearly entirely white congregation living in the suburbs what you should think or what you should do about concerns uh, that are current. The truth is, I've been trying very hard to examine myself in recent weeks and to examine scripture and to educate myself on the subject of race and racism uh, in our nation. You know, as followers of Jesus and as part of Jesus' body, Jesus' church, uh, we want very much to be agents of reconciliation and and love, and justice, and mercy, and hope, and practical good deeds. And so our hope is to respond thoughtfully and respond biblically in a manner that makes this whole conversation about racism or justice or reconciliation not just a conversation, but part of the heart of the journey that we're all on, the journey of discipleship, the journey of becoming more like Jesus. We want to be people that really do help bring justice. We want to champion justice for all human beings because, of course, we are all made in the image and in the likeness of God. So what I have to offer this morning are some, some of my thoughts that are still very much in process. Uh, for example, when we look at recent events, we've observed police shootings, Uh, We've observed police being shot. Uh, We've observed protests, some of them peaceful, some of them not. We've observed violent rioting and looting. We've observed property being destroyed or defaced. And uh, we know some things about these things with great clarity. For example, we know what Jesus thinks about murder. Uh, We have the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. We know what Jesus thinks about stealing, the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. 
We know what Jesus thinks about lying or putting forth lies instead of the truth. And that's the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We know what Jesus thinks about coveting, wanting what someone else has that doesn't belong to you. And that's the last commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And on these things, we all probably agree. These are, these are all wrong. These things are sinful. However, when we ask, what does Jesus think about the specific events in recent months regarding things like the death of George Floyd or the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or Rashad Brooks? Well, now we get all kinds of different opinions, even all kinds of different reactions, sometimes even different versions of the story, which make it very difficult to know exactly what Jesus thinks about each of those specific situations. Especially a situation where, if I'm being honest, I have to admit I, I don't have all the facts to render a really just opinion. Now this is why uh, I think James, Jesus' brother, says what he said. He said, everyone who should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to, to become angry. It's interesting to me that, that, that James didn't just get that truth given to him from the Holy Spirit. What he, what he got was he had the Holy Spirit inspire that in him, sure, but he actually learned that from watching Jesus as Jesus and he grew up together. Uh, James observed Jesus being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And this is why, at least in part, I've been slow to react publicly to these things or to make public declarations or to address these issues publicly. I've needed to watch and I've needed to listen and I've needed very much myself to pray. As I've done that, I've become really convicted about some words I quoted a few weeks ago of Jesus when Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, the truth is I've been trying to get the plank out of my own eye on this. My prejudices, my biases, my lack of caring, my thinking, you know, this is not my problem. You see, the truth is we all have planks in our own eyes. Maybe especially when it comes to things like racial issues or doing justice, justice for everyone. And this is why I, I said a couple weeks ago, we should rejoice that God is judge and we are not. God doesn't have any of those prejudices like we do. Let me tell you something else that I've been thinking about in recent weeks. And uh, that is the, the apostle Paul told the, the Christians who were in the church at Corinth. He, he said this, he said, if one part of the body, that is the body of Jesus suffers, every part suffers with it. Well, the body of Jesus is suffering right now. It's divided it's confused in places uh, and even at war with itself in some cases, just like our nation seems to be. 
So how do we think spiritually? How do we think theologically and Christianly and biblically in this moment in time in which we find ourselves? Well, I'll tell you the first thing we do is we turn to the word of God. Uh, there was a, a period of national crisis for the nation of Israel many centuries ago. A shocking disparity had developed between the extreme, extremely rich and the oppressed poor. And this was due to exploitation of Israel's middle class by greedy landowners who were acquiring more and more land and becoming richer and richer, and with uh, all kinds of collusion with corrupt political and religious leaders. It was a period of great sin, a period of great pain, a period of great struggle in the nation of Israel. And there were prophets at that time, prophets like Jonah, prophets like Micah, prophets like Isaiah, all prophesying the word of God, warning Israel, calling out Israel for her sins and calling her to repentance. And the question arose among the people in that context, hearing from these prophets, well, what exactly is God looking for? What does he expect from us? With what shall I come before the Lord, they asked. And in the book of the prophet Micah, various answers are proposed. Uh, for example, the first question uh, is, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? I mean, after all, the Old Testament requires certain offerings to atone for sin. So that would be good, they thought. They had with calves a year old. Well, you know, now we're kind of ratcheting up. That would be even better. Not just any old offering, but a, a yearling calf. That, that's even more precious and, and uh, more costly. So that would be pleasing to God, surely. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Wow, it ratchets way up here. Now we're getting uh, into some really serious sacrifice being made, thousands of rams. Or how about this? With 10,000 rivers of oil, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more precious, more and more costly until it culminates in this. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then we get this classic, classic statement that has been like a beacon of light, not just for people back then, but for everyone, everywhere, ever since. The prophet says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, and act humbly with your God. And that, I think, is what we must seek to do with God's help. Now, it's interesting, justice is a, a, a word bantied about a lot at this particular time. Uh, justice is a real important word, but sadly in our day, it's often used in their very polarizing and even political kinds of ways to express an agenda that, you know, one person is very much for and another is very much against. But friends, understand this, the word justice belongs to God. We've been talking a lot lately about God's justice as we've come close to the end of our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, there is a, a philosopher and a theologian that I've quoted before, not specifically about this, but in other contexts, Nicholas Waltersdorf, uh, who talks about justice, biblical justice, 
And he describes it this way. He says, one should never treat persons or human beings as if they have less worth than they do. One should never under respect or demean them. To do so, he says, is unjust. Well, that's kind of exactly the idea that's being expressed here in Micah chapter 6. When it says, act justly. It's very much about respecting people and valuing people. And not just some people, but all people. Old Testament prophets talked a lot about this. Uh, They said that God is going to judge societies, Israel in particular, which mistreat and abuse certain groups of people. And they particularly talked about widows and orphans and aliens and the poor, those categories of people. You read through the Old Testament and you'll see those groups of people come up time after time after time. Why? Well, because they were the most vulnerable to injustice. You see, they were the most likely people to be treated as having less value. They were disproportionately more often victims of injustice. And not only that, but the people who perpetrated the injustice or enabled the injustice tended very often to be blind to it. And so God says, act justly. That's number one. But number two, he says, love mercy. Mercy is kind of an interesting thing. Mercy is that thing which makes it impossible if you're loving mercy to sit on the sidelines. Mercy always wants to get up to its eyeballs and fixing something. If there's hurt, if there's pain, if there's suffering, mercy wants to be there. Mercy cares. You see, I've got to do something to help, to be a part of the solution, not the problem if I'm going to love mercy. So act justly, love mercy, and then lastly, walk humbly with your God. Humility. (laughs) There's an idea that's kind of in short supply, an idea that would help everyone on every side of every issue. Humility, you understand, never gets puffed up. Humility is always open to correction. Uh, It's the spirit that David had when he wrote Psalm 139. He says, search me, God, and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pride is the other way around. Pride says, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. It's not my problem. Pride says, thank God I am not like that tax collector. And that is always a very scary posture for a person who wants to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Question, does that convict you the way that convicts me? You see, Jesus came and he lived and he died and he embodied valuing others above yourselves, not looking to your own 
interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's exactly what Jesus was doing when he came and he lived and he died on a cross for you and me. His life, his death by example made humility a value rather than being a value that was derided and thought to be foolish. Jesus made the value of humility respected and loved by the world over. So you see, God's will is that we act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with him. That is God's will. And this is, in fact, part of the the great overarching meta-narrative of creation and fall and redemption and reconciliation, this, this thing of walking humbly with him. So we read in Genesis 1, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So understand, every tribe, every nation, every language, every people are of equal worth and equal dignity. And they merit equal respect and equal treatment an equal opportunity. And God intended us all to live in oneness and community together, just the way the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit live and love one another. They live in joy. They live in generosity. They live in kindness. They live in mutual delight. But of course, we don't. I mean, we fight and we hate and we take and we steal and we blame and sometimes we even murder. Why? Well, we didn't listen to God. We didn't obey him. In fact, uh, we didn't live with him in humility. In fact, we, we rebelled against him. We said, I will be God, not you, God. Our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled and so do we. The Bible tells, teaches us. And understand, can't, sin is the core problem of all our problems. Sin at, at its core makes life just about me. You know, it's me, 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 mine, 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 me versus you. And, and I'm concerned about me. Sin at its core is anti-love and anti-justice, anti-mercy, anti-humility. Sin, understand, is a real spiritual force, deeply embedded in me, deeply embedded in the world out there. Genesis chapter four talks about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain, at one point, after he's grown up with his brother Abel, Cain decides in his heart, I don't like you, Abel. Even worse, I hate you. I want you dead. And God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. In other words, sin is a predator. I don't remember where I heard this or read this. Probably Tim Keller. He he gets credit for every good thought. Uh, It might have come from Tim, actually. Uh, This idea that sin is a predator. It wants you. Uh, It it desires to have you. It is a force that seeks to devour you and me. And it it tries to convince you that you don't have 
a sin problem. It crouches at the door. It lurks in the shadows. It sits, it sits silently in unseen places. And it wants you to think that you don't have a sin problem when in fact it has you. And now we come to racism. What is racism? Well, racism is a sin. It's a form of anti-love and anti-justice and anti-mercy and anti-humility. Racism is me caring mostly or entirely about me and not caring about you. The Apostle Paul said this once, he said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So these forces understand, sinful forces in the world, they fight with Jesus for supremacy. And these forces use ideas. Uh, they use thought systems. They use philosophies. They use concepts. They use false religions. They use systems of government and systems of education and economics and judicial systems, all to wrest supremacy away from Jesus. Racism is one of those powers. It's one of those forces. It is a particularly pernicious force. It's in the same category as abortion and sins of that nature. Racism is race-based lovelessness. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about racism this morning, understand we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about culture. We're not talking about ideology. We're not talking about sociology, even though racism permeates all of those things. And our Christian faith is supposed to inform our thinking in all of those areas. But understand, those areas are not my job. Not when I stand up here. When I stand up here and I'm talking to you, I'm not a politician, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist. My job as a pastor is first and foremost, the gospel. And just so you know, racism wants to put its roots deep down into the gospel too, and has. Uh, there are whole theologies I'm sad to say Presbyterian theologies that argued once upon a time before, during, and after the Civil War that slavery's okay. Slavery, the practice of slavery is biblical, in fact. That's what they argued. Slavery is even a good and necessary thing. That was the argument by men like Robert Louis Dabney and James Henley Thornwell. And understand, these were godly men. They were men who followed Jesus. Uh, these were scholars. These were pastors. They were, they were teachers. And yet there were evil forces at work back then and still today trying to corrupt the gospel. Racism is like a pernicious weed. Uh, in recent weeks, I've been working hard at getting crabgrass out of my lawn. And I'll tell you what, crabgrass wants supremacy. And when you pull it out, the roots are really hard to get. And if you don't get the roots, what happens? You tell me. 
comes right back, comes right back. And so I will be going back in a few days or weeks and weeks to come to pull some more crabgrass and I'll have to keep going back. And that's what we are dealing with here. We've got to get to the root of racism. And the root of racism is the sin in our hearts. There's a wonderful op-ed piece in the Washington Post uh, probably two weeks ago by Condoleezza Rice, somebody I really respect. And, and, you know, she's a political scientist. She's a civil servant. She's a U.S. diplomat. She was the secretary of state. She's now, I think, a professor at Stanford University. Uh, And she points out that racism, and this is her language, racism is the birth defect of our great country. And our country is great. But it was started with a serious birth defect. She's exactly right. She, she points out that when our country was birthed, both Europeans and Africans came to this continent, but only one of those groups came in chains. And many good Christian men and women bought and owned and used those slaves for personal gain. And the only way they could do that, understand, the only way they could do that was to buy a version of the gospel that was a different version than God's actual story. A different narrative, if you will. One with racism rooted in it. An ideology that said that people with black skin are not made in the same manner or to the same degree in the image and likeness of God as people with white skin are. And so black people, therefore, have less worth and less dignity and less refinement and less drive and less confidence and less intelligence and less value and less innate ability and less beauty and less competence than white people do. Black people are less like God and more like animals. That was the narrative. That was the story. And so therefore, you see, the the hierarchical systems of government and economics and education that were put in place at that time were okay. God was good with this. That's what they said. Even though that was a lie. And that was not okay. Jim Crow laws, separate bathrooms, separate restaurants, separate places to worship, separate schools, separate institutions that would loan you money if you could even get a loan. And I can go on and on and on. Separate neighborhoods, separate but equal. Hmm. Not so much. White supremacy was not okay. That was not the gospel. You know, today when we hear the term white supremacy, we think clans and white robes and burning crosses and skinheads or Nazis or swastikas or stuff like that. But in fact, the roots of white supremacy still show up in our day, but usually in more subtle ways. For example, the voice that that still whispers in me, my people, my values, my norms, my appearance, my tastes, my culture somehow bears the image of God more fully than theirs does. 
You see, that, my friends, is a lie from the pit of hell. And it mocks Jesus. And it savages the church. And it corrupts the gospel. And truthfully, friends, I'm learning that it gets into just about everything. And when it does, it, it, it sinks down roots. It doesn't come out easily. And, you know, this is not about habit or customs or politics, although it affects all of those things. This gets into our minds and our thoughts and our perceptions and our language and our values. It affects the things we value. And therefore, it gets into systems that we create, banking systems or educational systems, housing developments, laws, churches. Sin is this way. It, it permeates everything. And friends, it even gets into law enforcement. You may not know it, but we have some fantastic law enforcement officers in our church who I deeply appreciate. I deeply appreciate the departments they work in. And I know these men and women to be really good people doing very difficult jobs in very uh, trying situations. And I believe most all of our law enforcement officers are good men and women trying to do a really difficult job. And I know from some of them that when they see an injustice being done at the hands of another officer, it grieves them. They're not okay with that. Not only does it do great damage to the victims and their families, but the ripples go far, far wider than that. It also makes doing their job more and more impossible in the communities where they serve. The damage sin does is incredible. Whether it's in a banking system or an educational system, a political system, a law enforcement system, or church systems. And don't think it's not around anymore. Don't think it's not in everything. There was a social research project. It's a very famous one. It was done in the 1930s and 40s by Kenneth and Mamie Clark. And uh, they had little children, little white children and little black children look at dolls. Some of the dolls had white skin and yellow hair. And some of the dolls had black skin and black hair. And they would ask these little children, which doll is ugly? Which doll is pretty? Which doll would you want to play with? And the white children and the little African-American children would disproportionately point to the white dolls. And friends, lest we think that that was only in the 1930s and 40s, this same study was replicated in 2010 by Margaret Spencer. She's a psychologist from the uh, University of Chicago. And she did this with, she put five images in front of the children, starting with a very white uh, image of a child and then a slightly darker, slightly darker to a very dark skinned child. Five images. And they asked the little children, four and five years old, again, white children, black children, which one is dumb? Which one is ugly? And you can actually watch some of that research from 2010. There are videos out there you can get. Little white girl says, that one is ugly because it's black. A little black girl is asked, which one has a skin color that people like? And she points to the white one. Wow. 
That is wrong. And that is sad. And that is evidence that the roots of racism go very deep. And that's why we have to keep pulling. We have to keep going back and we have to keep trying to weed out racism in us and out there. Now, will we ever eliminate racism? That's the same question as, will we ever eliminate sin? And the emphatic answer is no. Sadly, no, we will not. That is beyond our ability. But that's, that's no reason to stop fighting. Uh, some people will say, you know what? This whole thing is just a problem of the heart. It's just a problem of the heart. And I would say, well, no. It's also a problem with the systems that our hearts have created. There's a problem there too. But some people will say, well, you know what? It's just a problem with the systems. Uh, cultural Marxists will make this argument. So will critical race theory people. They will say, we just need to flip the systems. If we melt them down and dismantle them, we just need new and better systems to which I would say, yeah, right. That isn't going to work. It never has worked. Why? Well, because there's a problem of the human heart in all of this. Problem in my heart. It's a spiritual problem. The sin of racism is real, yes, but it's spiritual too. And it's diabolical. And I'll tell you what, just to be clear, Jesus hates it. I believe what's been um, happening lately, I, I don't know this for sure, but maybe, just maybe, God is exposing this sin um, because, you know, sin loves to hide, right? Again, what did God say to Cain? Well, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And in some of the videos that we've all seen, sin reared its ugly head and we saw it. And this evil demonic force was on display and we were sickened by it. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> I heard Will Smith, the actor, say this. He said, racism isn't getting worse. It's just getting filmed. Well, maybe. So be it. Sin and evil hate to be drugged into the light. So friends, maybe more than anything else at this time, what we have in front of us is an opportunity for self-examination, for examination of our systems and how they work or don't work. Again, I go to Condoleezza Rice's article in the Washington Post. I, I'm just going to quote a paragraph of it. I think she nails it. She says, in the wake of Floyd's death, Americans and people around the world are experiencing shock and grief and outrage. A set of emotions that too often get repeated. If the past is a guide, these feelings will fade and we will return to our lives. But something tells me, not this time. Floyd's horrific death should be enough to finally move us to positive action. Perhaps this is like the moment in 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus. Or perhaps this is like that fateful Sunday in September 1963, quite personal to me, she says, when a bomb in Birmingham church killed four girls from my neighborhood and shook our nation to the core. Some six decades later, she writes, perhaps all of us, regardless of skin color, 
are to quote Mississippi sharecropper and civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hammer. We're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And therefore maybe sick enough to do something. Maybe it's time to reach across, you know, political and racial and economic and religious barriers and refuse to accept the worst in us, the sin in us. The narrative that says some people are not as much like God as me and my people, you see. Maybe we'll start refusing to perpetuate the lie because it is a lie. Maybe we'll say no more of that in me. Get that out of me, Jesus. No more of that in my church. No more of that in my nation, in my society. No more. I will I will act justly. I will love mercy and I will walk humbly with my God. I just found this out doing some research this week. You know, we live in a society where when a little baby is born, if it's black, for a whole variety of reasons, if it's black, it is twice as likely to die in childhood than if it's a little white baby. Man, we should say no more. We live in a society where if a little baby is born and its skin is dark, it is much, much, much less likely to graduate from high school and much, 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 much less likely to go to college. It's way more likely to end up in prison. White baby, one in 23 chance of going to prison. Black baby, one in four. A black baby today is more likely to contract the coronavirus when it grows up, when it's an adult. Wow. It's less likely to get a good job. It's more likely to live poorer and die sooner. In fact, fact, a black family has on average one-tenth the household wealth of a typical white family. One-tenth. And that's a pretty big deal because household wealth is what sends kids to better schools and maybe even college. Household wealth is what stabilizes a family that's in crisis, you know, loss of income or a serious sickness or something like a divorce happens. Or household wealth is what enables someone to start a business and better themselves. And and I think The fact that black households have one-tenth the wealth of a typical white household, we should say, you know, that's not right. What's causing that? Let's do our best to fix that. I, I live in a neighborhood where there are hundreds and hundreds of homes where you could, I think, probably on one hand count the number of African American families who live there. I wonder what they think. I wonder how they feel about all this stuff that's going on. You know, in some places at certain times, property values would drop if a black family moved into the neighborhood. You weren't welcome in a white neighborhood if you were black. I wonder if these families that live in my neighborhood feel welcome. Here's something else I just learned. In our country, the top 10% of school districts spend 10 times more money per student than the bottom 10%. Lots of reasons around that. But that's not right. 
Where do you think the majority of black students go to school? Well, they're down there in that bottom 10%. So what do we do? That's always what white suburban evangelicals ask. What do we do? We want broken things to get fixed. We really do. So let's fix what's broken. Well, let's stop and realize first, friends, we can't even fix ourselves. Realize the sin of racism has been a long, long journey. It's been going on a long time. Progress has been made. All kinds of progress has been made. Greater you know, fields have been leveled. There is more opportunity. A lot of good things have happened in this nation to provide opportunity, but certainly not enough. Things can still be done in our systems, in our nation, in our churches. I think pretty much everybody agrees on that. So here's what I propose we do. I propose we pray. <laughs> and as soon as I say that, somebody's going to say, well, there you go. What a huge cop out that is. Action is what's needed, not more ridiculous prayer. Prayer is just an excuse to do nothing. And to that too, I would say, no, that is not true. That's another false narrative. Prayer is actually talking to the only one who can actually fix any of this. The only one who can change a human heart and fix a human heart. The, the only one that could actually bring healing and real lasting reconciliation to our nation. You know, only Jesus can fix hearts so that hearts fix or want to fix systems. Jesus is the reconciler. The ministry of reconciliation is his ministry. He came to reconcile sinners to a holy God. I can tell you this emphatically. Jesus hates sin and what it does to people and to families and to neighborhoods and to schools and to governments and to churches. God sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself. And when we are reconciled to God and when we pray and when we listen and when we walk humbly with Jesus, I believe he will lead us each and every one to a specific answer of what you and what I should do. In other words, I believe he can lead us each one to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. One thing for sure, if we think that we can tackle something like racism in us and in our nation, if we think we can flip systems or demolish systems and put new systems in place that fix this, we are totally kidding ourselves. And I would argue that history proves that. And that is why I say, let's start with prayer, individual prayer and lament. Let's start with prayer in our small groups. Let's have prayer in our church. Pray for our government leaders. Pray for the protesters, that protests produce something. Pray for leaders in African-American communities. 
Pray for leaders of systems in our nation that need change. Pray that God would be at work in our nation. Pray for godly good solutions to systemic problems. If that's in law enforcement, if that's in banking, if that's in the economy, whatever, so be it. Pray for wisdom so that stupid things aren't done that will accomplish absolutely nothing, perhaps even the opposite of what we want. Here's a big one. Pray for people's values to change, for hearts to change. Pray for your heart to change as I do mine. You know, again, I am woefully inadequate to talk to you about this stuff. I mean, white pastor living in the white suburbs with an entirely white congregation or nearly so. And I got to tell you, I rarely think about matters of race. I don't have to think about them at all if I don't want to. I'm white. But I'm also a Jesus follower. I'm deeply convicted that I need to listen and I need to pray and I need to care more about these things. That's the only way I'll act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with my God. But because we're mostly white evangelicals, I want to give you one thing to do in addition to pray (laughs) because you'll feel like you got robbed if you don't have something to do. We're going to send out a link to you all. Uh, It's a video that was made by Phil Vischer. You maybe have already seen it. You know, he's the guy who created VeggieTales, you know. He's a white guy. His video is called Race in America. And it's pretty good at helping white people get some perspective and understanding on what's happening right now in our country and kind of why. I would encourage you to watch it. It's 18 minutes long. Uh, It's helpful. It's helpful. It just might help you figure out what it means for you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we, uh, we beseech you, we cry out to you, we admit to you that we are actually a part of the problem. And I know in me, God, the biggest part or a big part of the problem, a big way that I contribute to this is I, I just don't think about it because I don't have to. I don't care about it the way you care about it, Jesus. I need a change to happen in me, in my heart, so that I can then with you figure out what acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with you in regards to this matter, this sin. And so I I would ask you to work in us and eventually through us, God, for solutions and for reconciliation. God, please hear us when we pray. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.